Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. A topic that fascinates everyone, about which there's been a great deal written, and yet, still we are trying to learn how to do it well, even in the 21st century, is leadership. Hello, I'm Mark Rutland. Welcome to The Leader's Notebook. One of the uh, aspects of uh, interest that we do in The Leader's Notebook, life, faith, relationship, and leadership. And today we're going to be concentrating on how two of those come together, on faith and leadership. I'm so glad that you've joined today. Um, I have with me two great men, Dr. Charles Galden and Dr. Sam Hemby. Both are professors, full professors at Southeastern University. Gentlemen, I'm so glad that you're here. Great to be here with you, Dr. Rob. Delighted to be with you, Dr. Rob. These two guys have co-written a book called Lead Like a King slash Queen, so it's inclusive, and the subtitle is Leadership Principles from the Judean Kings and Queens. What a terrific idea. Dr. Golden, let me begin with you. So I'll just ask you straight out, whose idea was it? Well, uh, to be honest, it, it was mine initially. Uh, the COVID had happened, and so we were teaching virtually, and Dr. Envy and I were playing golf uh, some. And I, I told him, I said, Sam, I have this idea for this book, but it, if I leave it just in the ancient world, it'll lose it. And so we need to speak between two worlds. And since your degree is in leadership, uh, would you consider doing the application? And so that's how the book started. And Dr. Hemby, I know you have your PhD, your earned PhD is from, uh, as from Regent, I think, in uh, institutional organizational leadership. Isn't that right? That is correct. Yes, sir. So you were able to provide the link. Dr. Galden is the Old Testament scholar, and of course, I know he's a Hebrew scholar as well. He has the, the original language. So you guys were able to knit together the studies of the Old Testament and how it applies to contemporary leadership. What a, what a unique idea. We're excited about the way it came together, and that actually, as Charles mentioned a moment ago, happened in my driveway one day <laughs> as he was mentioning that. And so it, um, it took us a few months, of course, to put it down in written form. But somebody asked the other day, how long did it take you to write that book? And I, I responded, a lifetime. So we kind of have drawn from all those experiences and education over a lifetime for it. It's a good answer. It's a good answer. I want to hear from you both on this. Um, there have been some writing teams in history. Nordoff and Hall wrote uh, the Bounty Trilogy. Um, Mutiny on the Bounty and Pitcairn's Island and Men Against the Sea. That was written by Nordoff and Hall. And there have been some other uh, creative teams, um, Tom and Jerry uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Dean Martin, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. I don't know. I don't know which one you guys are. I, I'm able to follow those guys. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it it is unusual for two people to work together on the same book. So what I, I want is for you to give us 
some insights into how that worked. Did you say, I'll write chapter one, you write chapter two? Or how, how does the, the collaborative process work? Yeah, I think that this is good to, to say. When, as far as the Old Testament concerns, when Solomon died, the nation of Israel split. Uh, ten tribes went to the north and formed their own country. The south uh, retained a, a country called Judea. And the Judean kingdom lasted the longest, three and a half centuries. And, and most people don't know this, but perhaps the oldest dynasty in ancient world is King David's dynasty. To give you an idea, it's about twice as long as one of the long ones of the Egyptian empire. It's longer than any of the Assyrian dynasties, Babylon, Greek, Persian, Roman. So uh, I had taken the 20 kings there, and we organized them, Sam and I, into 12 chapters. And I, I stayed ahead of him writing the Old Testament sections, and then he took the 12 chapters and wrote the application. I see. So part of it, you, you, you let out writing the biblical aspect of it. And then Sam, Dr. Hemby would follow by talking about writing about how, how does this work in leadership? Exactly. Yes. He usually stayed about two chapters ahead of me and gave me some time, of course, to ruminate on it and try to draw out the 21st century principles. So that's structurally, that's how it worked. I brag on Sam on this, and I'm not just saying this, but I've said it to so many people. He, the things he found in terms of application, I never would have found. I just never would have seen those things. And he, he just did an A plus. I think that's probably the best part of the book is the application. That's wonderful. I, uh, just before we go any further, let's talk about how people can get this book, Lead Like a King Slash Queen by uh, Charles Galden and Sam Hemby. Uh, how can they get this book, guys? Well, it's available on Amazon, probably the easiest way to do that, where you can get hard copy or the Kindle edition. So um, that's probably the easiest way to tap into it and have it in your hands either immediately or within a day or so. Good. Lead Like a King slash Queen, Leadership Principles from the Judean Kings and Queens by Dr. Charles Galden and Dr. Sam Hemby. Let me ask you about a specific Thing. This is a good example of, of how you make the application. So in chapter 6, it begins talking about uh, King Amaziah, and you point out that he reigned from 796 to 767 uh, B.C., obviously, and, uh, and it is recorded in two kings and two chronicles. So then you have these three interesting sections— past assassins, present mercenaries, and future combatants. Talk to me a little bit about past assassins. Amaziah's father was assassinated. And so naturally the people that committed the crime should be brought to justice. And passions being what they are, some in the ancient world and, and even today, people don't just stop with who did the crime, they'll go after the family members. But the uh, Deuteronomic law in Deuteronomy chapter 24 forbid that. It said each person shall stand for their own crime. You don't punish a child for what their father did and so forth. And so that's what uh, Amaziah did correct in, in that he 
only punish the people who are guilty. Mm. And, the, and the Bible takes a, a moment and uh, compliments them for that, that he didn't let his passions run wild. It, it is the, the lust for vengeance is a, is a dominant force, a powerful force, isn't it? Yes. And it, passions, you know, I think the city of refuges that they laid out because people, when they had a, someone die, just the passions, you know, that people just jump to conclusions and go after probably someone that, that was quite innocent. It was an accident occurred or whatever. So uh, Amaziah did control his passions there. I was going to add something here, too, and I may be getting ahead of your question. I apologize if I'm doing that, but this is a great segue into the practical application that was pulled out of Amaziah's life. Good. One of the reasons why passions get the best of leaders is because they stay worn out most of the time. And that gives that gives leeway to passions to begin to surface that ordinarily wouldn't take us over. So the name Amaziah actually means strengthened by Yahweh, a source of strength that comes from beyond and one that we can draw from internally. So in this chapter, I chose to write about the incredible value of getting proper rest. And that how rest and a Sabbath and those kinds of things are actually a command of God. Because passions, bad passions, things, destructive passions rear their heads. Rear their heads oftentimes when we are, uh, when we're worn out and don't have natural resistance from that. So that's kind of how those segue there. Yeah, I enjoyed your segue on that. Your passage in the book where you talk about withdrawing weekly. Um, the, the problem is we get so plugged in. Uh, that that the process of withdrawing itself is really can be almost painful. We can't we can't get out of it. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. And someone said that uh, rest implies two things: it implies uh, reflection, and it implies trust. In other words, we have to trust that we will accomplish more in six days than seven which mathematically doesn't work on a computer or a calculator, but it does on God's calculator. And second, it implies reflection. We slow down and we we reflect and become a a bit more inward in a healthy way. Yes, it takes incredible discipline, self-leadership. You know, this whole thing rises on self-leadership. It rises and falls on that. So it takes incredible discipline to set aside that time and to... um, to kind of, as Paul put it, keep under your body, that is to beat yourself black and blue to make sure that these disciplines are being kept, understanding uh, the value of them when they do and the incredible destruction that can come uh, when we when we don't do that. Charles mentioned just a moment ago about um, rest in a kind of a twofold perspective. I heard Jack Hayford say years ago, and it's always stuck with me about this issue, He was talking about taking a day a week, withdrawing weekly, taking a Sabbath day every week. And he said that it manifests two things. Number one, in one's thinking that when one will disciplining oneself to do it, number one, it will always say, God, I believe that I'll never get everything done. So a day a week is worthy. And secondly, what I do get done, I can never get it done without your help without your strength and without your blessing. So every time we take a Sabbath, we are declaring those two things. Mm, Beautiful. 
powerful. I like the way you put it at the end of the chapter. You talk about um, how to, to declare him both Lord of the harvest and the Lord of the Sabbath. You have three things, divert daily, mm-hmm. withdraw weekly, and abandon annually. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, just talk to me about what abandon annually means, because that's a abandon is a strong word. Absolutely. Well, I got that from Rick Warren. Um, I tried to give him proper credit on it in the footnotes. I have no idea. don't remember where I read it or heard him talk about it, but that's his outline. And the third part, abandon annually, is simply talking about taking a real vacation every year. Uh, unfortunately, we have all heard it and maybe have said it, you know, as if it were something spiritual and something worthy, saying things like, I haven't had a vacation in 10 years. Mm. Well, uh, that's that's not spiritual. <laughs> well, there's a real problem with that it's on several fronts, but abandoning, abandoning annually is simply talking about the fact that I need to get away for an extended period of time. I recommend a minimum of 10 days, and the book talks about it here, how it takes two or three days to unwind, four to five, six days then to rest, and then two or three days to begin to re-engage, getting back to work. Um, you know, people say, well, I'll take a day here and a day there and that kind of thing. And that becomes my vacation. I don't think that's adequate because we are not truly abandoning long enough for our mind and body to rest in that case. Good, good word. Good word, especially for leaders and particularly for pastoral leaders. Now, uh, so we have in this chapter on King Amaziah, we have past assassins and Dr. Hemby to, from Dr. Galden, Dr. Hemby makes the application then that as past assassins are rampant emotions. They can overwhelm us. They can overwhelm us if we don't have this process of the Sabbath. Then, Dr. Galden, back to you. The second one is you have present mercenaries. Now, tell me what present mercenaries means. Well, naturally, we the book is speaking between two worlds. So I have the ancient world you know, the biblical text. And at that particular time, Amaziah had a huge uh, battle in front of him, south of him with the Edomites. So he took a naturalistic approach and hired mercenaries. They were Jewish people from the northern kingdom. And he obviously did this without prayer, just thinking it through in the natural realm. And the prophets came to him and admonished him not to trust them, that to send them back, even though financially he would lose a, a small fortune. And it's, it's one of the great scriptures in the Bible. And, and the prophet said to him, the Lord can give you much more than that. Mm. Mm. And it, it's a powerful thought of what God can do. All right, then, Dr. Hemby, how do we jump back? So if we say that's the story from the Old Testament— What's the application to contemporary leadership? Yes, I think the application, once again, is in the name Amaziah, strengthened by Yahweh. And really, essentially, it gets back to what is the Creator's design and what does the Creator's manual uh, dictate to us. I told a story here as I began my section about uh, a memory I had way back from high school of a young girl coming in class one day, just bawling her eyes out. I saw that. I saw that story. (laughs) (laughs) 
And bottom line, you know, her car had run out of oil. She, the oil light had been on for two weeks, and she was just afraid her dad was going to have to kill her, you know, when, he got, when she got home with that kind of news. But I used that little illustration to say when we go against the manufacturer's design and we don't uh, live according to the manual, we're setting ourselves up for problems. And rest, consistent rest, that is withdrawing weekly, diverting daily, and abandoning, abandoning annually, that is not our idea. That is God's design, and it wasn't just a part of the law. It was before the law. It happened from creation. So that is part of the manufacturer's design. And to Charles's point, if we if we lose those days of quote unquote productivity, uh, the Lord can give you much more, according to the prophet. The Lord can give you much more than that. Yes, absolutely. One of the powerful passages in Scripture in, in Exodus, I believe it is, and Charles, you can correct me here if that's the wrong spot. It's always hit me that uh, God commanded the folks to take a Sabbath even in the middle of harvest. And I've had farmers that in churches where I've been and worked and pastored, and they would work seven days a week, sometimes 20 hours a day to get the harvest in. But God said, even in the midst of, of those kinds of situations where it looks like the harvest may go to waste if you don't work yourself to the bone, do it the way I've told you, and I can make up the difference for you. Now, I, I don't know why I chose King Amaziah, but I thought this chapter was particularly pungent, and I liked it. So then, Charles, we come to the third aspect. So the, the first one is past assassins. The second one is present mercenaries. But the third one is, uh, as regard to King Amaziah, is pretty negative, and that's future combatants. Talk to us about that. That's right. Well, the, as you said, the first two were very positive about him. But uh, the victory down in the with the Edomites, uh, it just messed him up mentally. Uh, first, <laughs> he, he just—it's kind of crazy in a way. He took the gods from the people he conquered, and he sought the gods of the Edomites after he had conquered the Edomites. Now that—that mm -hmm. that just shows you how far uh, we as humans can just wander away. I mean, we're just all capable of dumb things, and that one was, um, you, you know, you wonder how dumb we can be and still breathe oxygen sometimes. The second thing was it made him cocky, because the North was more than 80% bigger than the South. I mean, probably 80 to 90% population-wise larger than Judah. So to be that cocky, uh, he challenged the North into a battle. And so it was his undoing. He lost that battle, was taken into prison, and uh, lost catastrophically, even though the northern king, who was also Jewish, warned him not to do that. I like the way you ended. His army was defeated, his riches were gone, his power was gone, and in the end, he died a very weak leader. Isn't it amazing that we can win and win and win and win and then lose and lose everything. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Robin, one thing just from the biblical part, this is my section. The Chronicles, I noticed this, and when people are reading the Bible on this, notice it'll say, this is the beginning and the end of his reign. They, they, they land that on those two words often. The beginning of their reign, the end of the reign. And when they 
say that statement, it's often to emphasize to us uh, to, to try to begin well and also to end well. Very good. Now, Dr. Hemby, I want to ask you a question about how, how people might use the book. Of course, mm-hmm. I, I love just reading it. I mean, I, the, the, I'm fascinated with the kings and the prophets, as you know, and I've got a book myself coming out on it. But, uh, but I, I loved the book. But it seemed to me as I read it that there might be some really good ways it could be used. Uh, talk to us about that a little bit. Sure. Well, I think one of the ways, and I'm looking at this from a from a leadership, pastoral leadership perspective, uh, if I were a pastor and somebody could hand me a book that had the 12 kings um, lined out, there was a historical background, uh, it was broken down into segments, three to four points per, per king, the first thing I'm thinking is this would make a fantastic preaching series for a Sunday morning. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And doing it that way. The second thing has to do with the application. Of course, many of the applications in the book, I have used personal stories. Uh, many of them are stories from scars yeah. <laughs> that have taken place. But um, what I've tried to do in the application, someone, someone can certainly use that, but I, I would hope that it would spur someone as to how to think about a personal application uh, from the Kings. So they could preach this in a series and use their own personal applications uh, that would come to mind. So it would be a fantastic uh, preaching series if I'm looking at it from a pastoral perspective. Yeah, and I would like to just segue on that. There's a church over in uh, Vera Beach that has me preach three or four times a year. I don't know what's wrong with them, but they they have two Sunday morning services and a Sunday night. They're still one of those churches that have Sunday night. So uh, I talked to them about this series, and so I literally preached through all these kings at their church, uh, with the exception I the next time I'll handle Josiah and then the last kings. But uh, to my surprise and theirs, they uh, the congregation went uh, really well received and started inviting their neighbors, particularly for the Sunday night service. And so it went over very well. I think the the part I think I'm happy with on the Old Testament section is the outlines. A person could pick up the outline and and use that pretty well and then add their own material. A second way, too, I think, Doc, that this could be used well, both by those in leadership and, and anyone as far as that goes, is it would make a great personal devotional book, I think, uh, to walk through and um, um we're sitting in my office right now as we're speaking, and I'm looking at my shelf, and on my shelf I have a book that I actually referenced uh, in another chapter in our book uh, on King Asa. It's a powerful book called The Paradox of Success by John O'Neill, and it talks about some of the things that we've already mentioned, and that is how sometimes success becomes a stumbling block. And uh, we have a tendency at times after being successful to shoot ourselves in the foot and become self-destructive. And so I think it would be a great um, self-reflection book on a devotional level for anyone, especially those in leadership, uh, just to help locate us on the on the radar of life and leadership to see if any of these things are actually encroaching on our lives and get ahead of them if they are. I agree with both of those, uh, both as a preaching series, a teaching series, and as personal devotion. But 
for me, as I was reading the book, what I thought was this would be a great study guide for a small group mm. or like a men's fellowship or or cell groups, whatever, just to go through it chapter by chapter. Yeah. It, it, I thought it was a great instrument for a cell group. Yeah, we. Uh, it, it's interesting you say my church here that I'm a member of, it's a fairly large church, and they, in the month of September, I'm going to do that for them over a four-week period of time. We're going to go through these kings on a, a Wednesday night. And one of the reasons that we actually got together early on in the process and divided it up into 12 chapters was we kind of had that uh, that aspect in mind. Someone could take it and use it as a quarter for a small group teaching or something like that as well. Well, I want to just tantalize the listeners who are on the podcast today. Uh, I'm not going to go through this chapter, but I want to say you don't want to miss chapter three. It was It was fantastic. Uh, the chapter about King Jehoshaphat, uh, and listen to the four things. He was a good king. Second one may surprise you. He was a naive king. Mm-hmm. He was a military king, and he was a prophetic king. That's a that's a mixture, isn't it? Good, mm-hmm. naive, military, and prophetic. You, you don't want to miss chapter three. It's worth buying the whole book for. The book is great, but chapter three is worth buying the whole book. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I can identify with that naive. Uh, I, I tend to be naive, and I think part of it was, Dr. Rutland, I grew up with uh, marvelous uncles and aunts and grandparents in a rural part of the Carolina, and many cousins. We didn't lock our homes. And the, the bad part of that is you just assume everybody's good. It's true. But not everybody is good, you know. It's very true, isn't it? That's a, that's a good observation. It's a life observation. And uh, so I, I have... I've had to surround myself with people who had more discernment than I have. It's a life observation, isn't it? It's very true that sometimes being surrounded by people that are good and wholesome and everything, you get to thinking that everybody's like that, and you project that on unworthy people, and you can get burned. That's true. So true. This, this, uh, these kings remind me a little bit of Clint Eastwood's uh, movie, The Good the bad and the ugly. <laughs> mm, mm. And the reality is, uh, in the parable of the sower, I think uh, a little bit of those soils are in all of us. You know, we have hard places, good soil, things where the enemy steals, and things that our priorities get choked out. So I think the book, if a person will become a bit introspective and honest, we can see tendencies, good and bad, uh, that we, we face as humans. Absolutely. Well, I want to recommend this book to all my listeners. Uh, Dr. Charles Galden, Dr. Sam Hemby, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, they both are professors at Southeastern University, where I used to be the president, and I hired them both. <laughs> and uh, I, I, so I uh, love these two guys, and I love the book, Lead Like a King slash Queen, Leadership Principles from the Judean Kings and Queens. I, I urge you to go on Amazon, go everywhere, wherever you get books, get this book. It will be a blessing to you. In the first place, it will help you sort out the kings of Judea. So many people, they, they just see the kings as a smear on the windshield of history, and they don't really have a sense of the order of the kings. And I, I think it'll really bless you, the application in leadership that Dr. Hemby makes, 
the the wonderful insights biblically that Dr. Galden makes. This is a terrific book by two terrific guys. And I invite you, urge you, let me urge you to get this book, Lead Like a King Slash Queen, The Leadership Principles from the Judean Kings and Queens by Galden and Hemby. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being on The Leader's Notebook. I, I really appreciate your book, and I hope that my listeners will get it. Thanks so much, Dr. Rutland. It's been our pleasure to be with you. Dr. Rutland, thank you. You're still the greatest leader I've ever met. <laughs> you need to get out more. <laughs> well, well, thank you both. Thank you, gentlemen, and thank you for listening. Until we meet again, this is The Leader's Notebook, and I'm Mark Rutland. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.